Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today on the podcast, I'd like to expand your bookish podcast world and introduce a fantastic new show on 2SER, Death of the Reader. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture. Now, the Great Conversations podcast, it's a great chance to hear more of these discussions and dive deeper into the books that you love. Death of the Reader takes you on a murder mystery world tour. Presented Sundays at 9pm on 2SER by Felix Shannon and Benjamin Herder, you'll be treated to the history and mystery of classic detective fiction. From classic British puzzles in the golden age of detective fiction to the weirdest of foreign detective fiction and also explore everything in the grisly world of the locked room. So put on your deerstalker caps and grab your notepads for the first episode of Death of the Reader. Welcome to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour on 2SER 107.3. I'm Hertz, he's Flex, this is the hottest new show. Or the uh, corpsiest new show, seeing as they are murders. (laughs) That's awful. (laughs) Well, so is murder, and that's what we'll be exploring as we take you through some of the iconic works from the murder mystery genre from around the world. Yeah, we're going to get you guys excited about detective fiction and teach you why it's an even better time waste than video games. It's one of these things, people talk a lot about the replayability of media products when you get them and, you know, Mm. all of these things like, oh, wow, you know, the Netflix special that you can go back and find all of the different endings or whatever. But, you know, detective fiction's been here for hundreds of years and it's been doing all of these things. Yeah, it's crazy. Murder mystery and detective fiction all built on this idea of this puzzle you have to solve and no read is the same. Yeah, so tell us a bit about the novel we're looking at today, Herds. (laughs) Sure, yeah, Flex. Uh, Today we're discussing uh, chapters one to seven of The Three Taps, uh, and we'll be tackling in bits over the next three weeks. Uh, It was authored by Ronald A. Knox. He's an old bloke who helped shape the mystery genre. Later on the show, we'll be taking a deeper dive into who Knox is and all the things he did to the genre. He's a superhero origin story. Mm -hmm. But right now we have a novel to unpack. Have you perhaps heard of A Series of Unfortunate Events by Lemmy Snicket? A tale marked by misery and yet rife with absurdist humour and bad English puns. The Three Taps is not so different. It begins laying out the mystery with a lengthy description of an insurance company. The man who is insured with the indescribable walks the world in armour of proof. Those contrary accidents and mortifications which were a source of spiritual profit to the saint are a source of material advantage to him. They tell stories of a client who murmured, thank God, as he fell down a lift shaft, and a shipwrecked passenger who manifested the liveliest annoyance at the promptness of his rescuers when he was being paid for floating in a lifebelt at the rate of ten pounds a minute. So thoroughly has the indescribable reversed our scale of values here below. The one thing I really love about the introduction and description of the indescribable is both the absurdist style of humor that we have going at it, but also how timeless it feels. The, the way that they're introduced feels like you could drop it in, you know, the late 90s and it wouldn't sound out of place. Aside from a few artifacts of older style language, there's nothing that really would be out of place in a modern novel. Yeah, it's fun because uh, Let Me Snicket's series obviously is written to sound like it's, you know, it's in the past. And in many points, it's kind of satirizing that old timey, you know, writing. Uh, it, it, he's an English professor, I think, uh, the actual author who wrote the novel. And so he makes all sorts of fun jokes about this is how he used to speak back in the olden days. But Knox has kind of done the opposite. And I think that the novel has actually aged very well, this story without a moral. 
I think the other thing that's really fun about the introduction of the indescribable is the introduction of their euthanasia policy. The euthanasia? The what euth- have they done to you? Asia- <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Flex? What have the euthanasia done to you? So that's all I'm saying. Basically, it's this policy uh, that if you die before the age of 65, yep. your family gets a huge payout from the indescribable. But if you survive past 65, you then get a very high paying pension from this policy. Yeah. And our murder victim this time around dies just before his policy is about to tick over to the pension, which means that the zero people that he has left on his will are going to get an enormous amount of money. And herein lies the crux of our murder. Yeah, it really sets up this kind of fantastical murder of a man who knew he was going to die and nobody believed him and this very strange setting that uh, that Knox is trying to lay out for us with, what's his name, Mottram, I believe? Jephtha Mottram. That's him, that's him. Yeah, a very well-to-do sort, but who is in a panic uh, because he knows when he's going to cock it. One of the really interesting things about the way that Mottram's death is presented in this novel uh, that I really love from the puzzle sense is the way that it sets up that, you know, it's not who killed him. It's did anyone kill him at all? Yeah. We're presented with a very kind of fun puzzle. When we first reach the scene of the crime, there are the titular three taps and they seem to have been turned off in a peculiar manner. Uh, that being that we, we can't determine if they've been turned off because there are no fingerprints. It's kind of a weird setup, uh, and there's the indication that perhaps Mocha might have uh, taken his own life, and that's why our hero, Miles Brendan, uh, Brendan, Brendan, I know what I said. <laughs> Miles Brendan is sent in to investigate. Now, these three gas taps. Mm. One of the fun things about the way that they're set up, as you say, is that they're set in a position where it doesn't really make sense that it would have been a murder because we can see where it was turned on, but not that it was turned off. And there's also one master switch that controls two other switches. And, you know, I don't want to sit here and run you through all of the no, of all of the mathematical not. possibilities of how the gas, gas taps could have because been set. Because we all know that's what people are here for, for a murder mystery. Yes. The maths. <laughs> the, the, the maths of murder, you might say. But basically, it makes it seem like it was probably an accident or suicide. Mm. But of course... If it's a suicide, then he wouldn't have received his payout. And if it was an accident, then, you know, the police's criminal investigation doesn't have to carry on. Yeah. So there's this big contention between our two detective characters, Miles Bredand and Leyland, his former buddy from his old uh, unit in the war. Mm, yeah. Yeah, we're presented with this very interesting kind of tension between the two of them, and it really drives their investigation going forward because, of course, Brendan's trying to prove that it was a, a suicide and Leyland is trying to prove that it's a murder and they kind of clash in a, in a friendly way. Um, and that's something that I find really cool about this novel. It's trying to like set up this, you know, this detective cop relationship with the, uh, the Malgré Louis, the detective uh, in spite of himself. There's a big notoriety for a lot of old school detectives where the longer those detectives kind of stuck around in the series that the author wrote them, the more people and the author tend to tire of them because they basically just became so forthright and pretentious about how good they were at solving things that they were no longer likable. Um, And I think that the way that Knox is engaging with the emotion of these two friends with differing opinions battling out over who's right kind of makes them a lot more personable than a lot of detectives otherwise would be. Yeah, for sure. 
And I think one of the other things that's really interesting about the role of the detectives in these stories is that when it comes to, you know, a game approach to murder mystery novels, Miles Breddon is your first person perspective. He's the one whose camera you're looking out of in the TV show of this story. And the role of the detective is something that our author, Knox, was really big on in this certain piece of theory he wrote about. Yeah. He wrote, uh, he, was a, he, was a, he was a churchman uh, back in the day, this old bloke. And so he took it upon himself to write up a series of rules to try to order a fair play detective fiction, which is kind of the broader, you know, part of the genre of murder mystery. One of the things that I really love about the way Knox writes stories is he's a guy that is so clearly engaged with how people read stories. One thing you might have heard of, this, this little piece of media history called War of the Worlds by Orson never Welles. Heard never heard of it. Only a defining piece of, you know, radio media was actually inspired significantly by an earlier similar stunt by Ronald Knox mm. because he was also a radio broadcaster. So we're basically sitting in his shoes right now. I'd hope so. I hope we can, you know, convince the entire city of London on a snowy morning that the end has come. Well, we'd have to move to London first. Why? The internet's powerful these days. It's true. We can broadcast the way to London. We could do that. You'd come with us to London, right? Yeah, let's go. Now, the Decalogue that he wrote up, these rules for the murder mystery genre kind of lay out, you know, the the fair play. If, if, if we're going back to the game analogy, this is the game engine that Knox works with. They're the constraints that you don't really escape from. And it's all about fair play so that you don't get to the novel like you got to the end of Ocean's 12 and discover that the entire movie was worthless because of this one montage (laughs) that undoes everything else. Yeah, I mean, it functions in a a similar way to to foreshadowing. You know, if you got the the Chekhov's gun in the bar at the start of the 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 movie, it should be fired by the end. Uh, By the same token, you should do things, very simple things like... Uh, foreshadowing the criminal, having them be present in the story, uh, having them not be some, you know, very obvious foreign villain out for their own gain. Those are the sorts of rules that he lays down. So by chapter seven, where we're discussing up to today, Mm. that means we should already have all the pieces on the table. We should have. The, The very engaged reader should realistically already have a feasible, if not complete solution. They should certainly have the inkling of one, at the very least. Coming up a bit later on the show, we'll be discussing our solutions, having a bit of a fight about who's right, who is the criminal, was there a criminal at all, but you'll have to stick around for that. Don't reflect, I'll go easy on you. I don't believe you for a second. (laughs) But speaking of rules, there's this little thing in, you know, media studies called structuralism herds. I've never heard of it. Well, the good news is for you herds, I sat down with Andrew Popel from Final Draft to chat a bit about it so you can learn. Stick around for that. Hey, you're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER 107.3. We're here with Andrew Popel from Final Draft. Andrew, how are you? Hey, Felix. I'm good. How are you? I'm going very well. So we've been speaking on the show today a bit about structuralism, and that's kind of, you know, the the first time I'm seriously going to address that word. Okay. Are you familiar with structuralism? When you're talking about structuralism, I think in my head I'm looking at it from a few different backgrounds as what I would know as narrative theory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so particularly with structuralism, kind of the the main pop culture one is the 12 steps of the hero's journey. Mm. Like that's the one that I think most people cover in high school. It's uh, prevalent in Star Wars. It's in a bunch of other things, Lord of the Rings. It's kind of of one of the defining narratology structuralist theories. 
And I wanted to sit down because we're talking about Ronald Knox and he's sort of made this structuralist theory we're speaking about on the program today, his Decalogue, which is his rules of fair play for murder mystery. Now, I wanted to talk with you about structuralism and see how you think structuralism can help or hinder some stories because it's one of these things where, you know, you get two stories and they have a very similar structure and people will say, well, you know, that's that's just ripping this off. How how do you think that having a set defined structure that's, I guess, tried and tested can help a story? So structures do this really interesting thing in a story. And, and I think an important question to ask is whether the structure is imposed or whether it's observed. So for someone like Knox, who I'm not as familiar with, but, but you know, part of his oeuvre, he was coming out from, you know, some sort of for 20 years before he was even born, we had people like Wilkie Collins and then we have the uh, the Conan Doyles of the world and they did things with their, their fiction, their detective fiction, um, and then people observed, oh, well, here's what works, here's what didn't. I mean, the great thing about rules is they're, you know, often defined in their breaking. So I think when I look at Knox's Decalogue, what he's trying to do is say, well, this is how the story is not only going to work, but it's going to be a good story. And fair play is a really interesting word there because a lot of the things he does are there to make it fair, not just for his characters or other writers' characters, but for the reader. And one thing that really interests me is the idea that the reader kind of has to have a fair chance there's a sense of manners, but there's also a sense that the reader can be a part of the story. The reader has the information to maybe solve the crime themselves, and that's definitely a good thing for an engaged reader. Yeah, that's the one thing that I really like about the Knox Decalogue is it, it kind of defines murder mystery as the the early interactive medium of its era. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a game that you get to play against the author. It's mm-hmm. not unheard of for an author to jump into a st- story in murder mystery and say like, hey, how are you going solving it? because that's kind of the approach that they take with these puzzles. So having this observed structure and seeing what puzzles have worked, how it's fair for the reader so you don't feel bamboozled when you come out the the tail side, I think is really good in a murder mystery context. We need it to be there. We need to feel like we've got a fair chance if we want to be engaged. I mean, I, I like reading stories like that. I hate getting to the end of something that is a mystery to be solved and looking back and thinking, I don't think I could have done that because... And this is one of the rules, you know, it can't be too bizarre, far-fetched. I think I jotted them I jotted them down in my own shorthand, but things like uh, you can only have one secret room and I wrote down you can have no wacky science, but I believe uh, Ronald yeah. Knox also included things like unknown poisons and he was yeah. really talking about technology. Of course, the rules have changed very much mm. in the near 100 years, but I, I like the idea of there being a fair chance. Of course, we then get stuck in that area of if we read enough of these, we could almost write it ourselves once we know who the characters are. Yeah, there's this big trope in murder mystery called the closed room, which is basically that someone has died or a crime has happened in a room, but it couldn't have happened because the door was locked from the inside, Mm. which meant that is the criminal still in there? And the trick always ends up being that it's not actually a closed room. It's Mm. something that makes it seem like one. And that's kind of the risk that you say that these rules can bring us towards where, you know, we know what's happening. Like, come on, give us something fresh. Yeah, it's a game of Poe and monkeys, really. Mm. Um, that that then gets innovated on, and I think that's one of the things we can see now that technologically we have the ability to make visual narratives, you know, film, TV, where the closed room is happening in space. The closed room is happening in, well, I can't say I've actually seen this yet, but we're going to see it in sort of microscopic realms. I mean, I'm sure there's a great Ant-Man coming up where the closed room is actually in the quantum realm, but... <laughs> 
because we can muck around realistically with areas that were, I guess, wacky, were a bit too bizarre uh, in Ronald Knox's era, we can innovate. Uh, I think it's the other areas that um, we need we need to be wary of. We need to be wary of, and this plays into the the idea of the hero's journey. The hero's journey is linear, whereas Knox's Decalogue is instructive. But you don't have to follow a step by step. Yeah. In the hero's journey, we we can reasonably say, "Oh well, I think I know what's going to happen next." Yeah, because the hero's journey has to kind of has to happen in a certain way. Um, if we know the rules too well, it can be hard for the writer to work within them. But I, I think also. Uh, there's an element of tongue-in-cheek about uh, Knox where, um, and I think other commentators where they say, well, also, we're going to break something. Oh, yeah. There's there's definitely a lot of a uh, lot of moments, especially in the three taps, the novel we're covering this week, which is just openly absurdist about the way that the rules of the genre are applied. Mm. And I think that the, the self-awareness of things like that is particularly fantastic. A more modern example would be something like Altered Carbon, mm-hmm. uh, not strictly a murder mystery, but especially with its Netflix reboot. The one thing that's really fun about that as a murder mystery is the victim's alive because he's effectively been resurrected. Mm. And the way that you can still play and innovate off these rules is fantastic and broad and exciting. Mm. And we're sort of getting into the realm of that that hated word right now, which is postmodernism, where <laughs> as, soon as, you've got, as soon as you've got rules, you can be self-referential. And I mean, I haven't actually watched Altered Carbon, um, but I mean, the, the resurrected character is just that's that became that hackney trope of the, the sort of the heroic comic sort of thing. And we just got sick of, you know, characters being resurrected. It's great that they've resurrected it, made it a part of the plot. And now suddenly we have to solve the, the murder that, it, you know, isn't a murder. Exactly. Now, I think the other thing that always interests me, particularly with things like the Steps of the Hero's Journey and Narratology, is the idea of uh, the repetitive things that, you know, they seem derivative because they're drawing from the same source material. Mm. Like, for example, uh, Mortal Engines, which again just had a film made of it, is feels extremely derivative of things like Star Wars. How do you think that authors can approach using these structures uh, while still innovating with, you know, without having to break the rules? I, I think on the one hand, to a certain extent, authors don't have to worry about that. Um, I don't know where you live, Felix, but I know in my suburb there's at least a few places I can get pizza. And these places are not worried that they have to constantly innovate pizza. They do. They do. And sometimes <laughs> it's terrible. But, you know, the basic structure doesn't change because they know that we'll always have an appetite for pizza. And I think for certain, for certain things, you know, space operas being one of them, we will always have an appetite and for, for people that want to eat pizza every day, you only have to change the space opera just a little bit and you'll get an audience. Uh, for people that want to do it well, I think we're now in that realm of how do we, one, break the rules in a savvy way and two, I think maybe coming back to that, looking at the idea of narrative theory, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? Um, is it forming us or are we forming it? And looking at who is actually doing the formation. Also, fascinatingly, I this was one that was a real, real stick out for me in in Knox's Decalogue. The um, the sidekick or the the offsider uh, was meant to be just a little bit dumber than the reader, and they were not allowed to have thoughts that weren't immediately apparent. So they're they're meant to be our cipher. That's what Knox is saying. Mm. The sidekick is the cipher, and the sidekick is dumber than us. So I guess it never feels like we're being talked down to by the reader. Um, probably in order, I'm not the hugest Jude Law fan at the best of times, but big Martin Freeman fan and also Lucy Liu in the, uh, the American. Oh, I'd forgotten about that one. Yeah. So a Lucy Liu or a Martin Friedman are, you know, these are 
heroes in their own right in the series. And that's really brought to the fore in the storytelling. So I like when we are able to follow extra characters and they're not getting killed too too often in hero narratives. A, A character usually a woman, is being killed to fuel the story arc. Mm. Or um, they're they're sidelined. I mean, even Gandalf in Lord of the Rings gets killed off and brought back. And it's a real shame. There's a part of me that wanted to follow his story a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah. I like when when secondary characters are actually kind of like secondary primary characters. Yeah, that was one thing that I really enjoyed, particularly about the three taps, um, was Angela... Uh, Miles Breden's wife in the story, she's brought in as the Watson character, but it's it's con- constantly covered that she's actually as intelligent, if not more intelligent than Miles Breden himself, but her skill is that she's able to enter this more simple space and, you know, see things from the normal person's perspectives that our detective can't. Mm-hmm. So her perspective in the three taps is really amazing because we get a, a really nice balance between that Watson character and the strong female character. That I enjoy that. I enjoy having more of a unified approach. I enjoy having multiple points of view that I can take on board. Um, knowing that the sidekick was meant to be dumb and that was the point of view that I was supposed to be kind of getting in on, that that shook me a little bit. Uh, but it, it, that's, that's the hero's journey too. The hero mm. is individualistic. The hero goes through this on their own. They have help, but the help is peripheral. It very much fits our version of modern society. It very much fits a version of uh, our modern history and, you know, our, our, our selfie-obsessed culture. But it's not the only way. And I'd, I'd be really curious to see what a, a collective detective fiction would actually look like. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Death of the Reader this week. You can catch Andrew on Final Draft on Saturdays on 2SER. It's a pleasure, Felix. Thank you. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER 107.3, and it is time for the throw down. All right. Old Hertz is going to lay it out straight to you. My man Flex here has only read up to chapter seven, but I have read the whole thing, the whole novel. So we both come up with our own culprit theories, and I'm going to put his to the test to see if he can figure out who the criminal is. Sound good, Flex? I think I'm ready. Do you have your detective notebooks prepared? It's time for the final throwdown. Two stories with a fishing pole. You've titled it Two Stories with a Fishing Pole. Yes. That makes me a little concerned. No, no, it's a perfectly logical theory. Um, The only character, (laughs) the only characters who've been presented with a fishing pole in the story thus far, one of them's dead. Mm. The other's like 80 years old. Well, that gives you two whole culprits. My, My theory can work for two people. Your theory can't even work for one person's, and I'm going to let you know why. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Hope you're ready for this. Getting, getting into this, getting into this, we, we have eight suspects, maybe three of which are serious, against three detective characters. Mm-hmm. So we've got Miles Breden, our Sherlock, our mm-hmm. detective. Mm-hmm. We've got Officer Leyland, our Lestrade, and we have Breden's wife, Angela, our Watson. Now- you know, obviously, you're like our Lestrade, but mm-hmm. between you and I, Herds, who's Sherlock, who's Watson? I mean, clearly I am. Clearly I 
am the Sherlock because I just I'm just such a dapper gentleman. <laughs> That's fine with me because I've always long been of the opinion that Watson is the true hero of the Sherlock stories, and I think that Angela embodies that in that she is clearly smarter than Breton, but she's not one that's, you know, I- interested in the profession. So shout out to the best character in the book. Shout out to Angela. <laughs> we love her. Okay. So let's just quickly break this down because we have Ferris, the doctor who gave the autopsy. Yep. I think it's pretty flat out obvious that it can't be Ferris. He's been mentioned twice this far in the story, has no real character moments He's just the autopsy man. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have a connection. And obviously, in a murder mystery, it's pretty important to figure out if your doc is reliable, because sometimes they can say someone's dead when they're not. And we want to figure out that right quick. Exactly. And you think the doc is reliable? I think that the doc is reliable. I'm going to lock that one. Locking it in. All right, cool, cool. I would feel cheated if he was unreliable, because there doesn't seem to be any presentation of it. Then our other two main suspects... Uh, Pulteney and Brinkman. Pulteney's the old man who's there to fish, and Brinkman's the secretary of the uh, of the load of mischief, the inn in which the incident takes place. Now, I think it's Brinkman. What? Why? Tell us. And now, before you tell us, there are three main things that we want to have ironed out by the end of, end of this discussion: is the who done it, the how done it, and the why done it. These are the three tenets of the murder mystery genre, the detective fiction genre. So that's what you need to be keeping track of in your notebook. You reckon you can solve this, Flex? I reckon I can. All right, let's give it a go. So the first thing I think is that Brinkman is one of the first characters presented with motive, Uh right? There's this discussion between Pulteney and Brinkman where they're discussing why Mottram would have chosen to commit suicide. Both of them present a motive in that scene in that Pulteney says like, oh, it'd, you know, it'd it'd ruin the town or whatever. But then, but then Brinkman says, well, I know, I think it'd bring notoriety to the town, wouldn't it? Mm. Now, the thing is, right, I think that both of those characters are given motive in that scene, but I, f- I, I feel like Brinkman's is the one I believe in the most. Because, you know, when you're like, oh, the guy's died in this town, yeah, God, that's going to give the town a bad reputation. You know, you're thinking about the gritty, gruesome side of it. Who thinks, no, that'd be a good PR boost? Like, I guess maybe he's the a secretary psychopath. of the hotel. Yeah, and he's the secretary <laughs> of the hotel, right? So he probably wants business in this town. Well, who knows? Maybe that kindly old man is hiding something behind those eyes. You know, Angela says he's very likable, but really, how well could she read people? Well, that's the know? other thing is I trust Angela. Do you know? More than Breton? Absolutely. Mm. Breton says he trusts Angela more than himself. Remember, <laughs> all just a bunch of idiots. Who knows? Who knows? We'll have to learn. Now, the, the other thing is, is that Brinkman says he was the one that found the body first, which yeah, to does. me says opportunity, oh. right? He's the secretary, so he probably has keys to the whole place. He could have gone in there earlier. He could have, you know, he probably knows how the gas taps work, so he could have explicitly made something that seemed confusing, mm. right? I think he's also the one that relays to us that one of the gas taps is stiffer than the others, which isn't a piece of information you notice unless you've, like, dealt with them a lot. Well, obviously, I am here to disagree. I think that the one and only culprit that exists in this entire hotel... Is old Mr. Mr. Pulteney. I think you are ridiculous. No, sir. No, sir. You see, you see, the clues have been laid before us. First off, Pulteney is the first character that we meet in the whole novel. The whole novel when we're heading to the the hotel. He's off fishing by the lake and you think, my goodness, Herds, that's so unsuspicious. Just doing fishing? That's nothing. But he says that the cops had showed up just before he left. That seems mighty convenient to me. 
Secondly, he has those long fishing poles. There's a real big, you know, mess made of how it was locked from the inside and the keys were in the door and all that nonsense. So no human could have locked it from the outside. But the window was slightly open, and thus I posit to you. Oh, no. That Mr. Pulteney, <laughs> from the second story, with the fishing pole, hooked the tap <laughs> and turned it. Because that's why there's no fingertips. No. That's why there's no fingerprints. No. Because it was the uh, the fishing pole. First of all, we haven't had a two-story ladder presented in the story. Second of all, the windows have bars one. over Maybe the outside. Maybe he made here. a ladder out of fishing poles. Third, you don't third know. of all, third of all, it says that the window opens a slight bit, and yeah. it's not presented a to us. That thin enough for a wire to fit in. Come on now, you gotta, you'll know these murder mystery novels. They're tricky, you see. You gotta be on the lookout <laughs> for all sorts of like wires sticking the locks and like vents with poison darts in them. And like all that nonsense, I'm just saying. All right, then, all right, then, all right, then. With the poison bolt, that's all I'm saying. I think that's absurd. That is he- the theory. Just you wait. Two weeks time, you're no. gonna be eating it. You're no. gonna be eating it, sir. No. Well, final thing I want to get your agree or disagree on. Uh huh. Accident, murder, suicide. Which is it? Which did you think when you were at this point in the story? Murder. Done. Murder. Easy. I reckon accident. I reckon accident with a culprit. Okay. How's that work? Now, someone turned the tap on and left a print, but there's no print from it having been turned back off. Mm-hmm. Now, what I reckon's probably happened there is that Brinkman's turned it on, left one of the other, you know, secondary taps open. Mm. He's died, come back into the room and gone, oh God, I've killed him. <gasps> and then he's like, well, I can't leave my prints on this. So he turns off the master tap. There you go. While maybe. the secondary tap is still on. I suppose there's got to be something funky going with those taps. There's three of them Because that also deals with the story without a moral. Mm. Because if it is a murder, how do we not ascribe a moral to murder is wrong? It's mm. an excellent question, Flex. I suppose we'll have to find out. Have to find out at the end of this piece of art. I'm glad that you were able to join along with Herds and myself on our quest for dominance in this murder mystery fight. Mm. Next week, we'll be looking at chapters 8 to 18 of The Three Taps as we slowly creep towards victory. Well, I creep towards victory. And maybe you do as well, but not hurt, because Paltney can't climb two-story buildings. Yes, he could. You can't underestimate those old old people with fishing poles. (laughs) (laughs) They're very powerful and dexterous despite their age. (laughs) Well... Thank you so much for tuning into Death of the Reader. If there's anything else you want to hear from us, an extended chat with Andrew Popel, a bit of extra discussion about how we think the crime was done, be sure to check out the podcast online. We'll see you next week. That's it for this great conversation, introducing Death of the Reader. I want to thank Felix Shannon and Benjamin Herder for inviting me on and allowing me to share their show. If you want to get more Death of the Reader, tune into 2SER 107.3 every Sunday evening if you're in Sydney on 2SER.com, wherever you are in the world, and listen back wherever you get your podcasts. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your podcast app and you will get a new great conversation every week. My name's Andrew Popel and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. I'll talk to you then.